Christmas. Now, I know that Advent doesn't actually start until next Sunday. Um, but Christmas is around the corner, as Nick also has already been sharing. Um, I had a lunch this week with one of the other pastors, Paul McArdle, and he had a mince pie for his dessert, which tells me Christmas, it must be upon us. Uh, tomorrow, my wife and I are going to buy a Christmas tree. Now, I know this is contentious. Some of you are looking at me with, with expressions verging on disgust, frankly. Uh, we're going to buy a Christmas tree, and we're going to decorate it, I think, before December starts. So I know this is one of the great contentious issues of our time. Uh, that and Brexit must be the things on your mind the most. So, quick show of hands. Who, is prepared, who has done or would purchase and put up said Christmas tree before December? Show of hands. Yes, I have a few outliers. Yeah, a few North Americans. You can rely on them. Very good. A few of you are genuinely outraged. I can, I can see that. Um, so Advent is around the corner, and, for, and for, the, for the Christian church, Advent is the season by which we approach Christmas. It's the season by which we approach Christmas. And it really helps us, rather than arriving at Christmas kind of caught unawares, as it were, for the Christian church, Advent helps us approach the Christmas season with a sense of joy and reverence and reflection and fresh understanding and fresh gratitude. And that's why we, over the last two, three years at King's, have paused our autumn series and have taught into Advent so that we approach Christmas with our trust this morning, that sense of reverence, awe, excitement, gratitude, and so forth. And um, this year, our Advent teaching series is called The Promise. That's what we're going to teach into these next three Sundays, with the carol service being the slight outlier in between, The Promise. Now, Captain Robert Campbell, let me illustrate it to you like this. Captain Robert Campbell was uh, captured in World War I in 1914. He found himself in a prisoner of war camp uh, for a couple of years in France. And in 1916, he learned the sad news that his elderly mother was quite ill. As a prisoner in France, he learned that news. And he took the audacious step of writing a letter to the, the ruler of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II, if you know your history. And he wrote this audacious letter, bearing in mind he's a captive prisoner of the German Empire, saying, my mother is ill in uh, Kent in England. Please can I go and visit her? Should you allow me permission to go, I promise that I will return to prison. Remarkably, Kaiser Wilhelm II agreed to that request and that promise, and he let uh, Captain uh, Robert Campbell return to uh, southern England in November 1916 to visit his uh, elderly, ill mother. Even more remarkably than that, I think, Captain Robert Campbell was true to his word, and he did. Two weeks later, cross the channel, back to France, he returned to the prisoner of war camp and handed himself back in to his German captors. He honored his promise. Now, if you were a German prisoner of war uh, soldier in that, in that camp at the time, I wonder what you would have thought of Captain Robert Campbell. What would you have made of him? Now, you might think he was a bit foolish not to take up his opportunity to escape and stay at home. Why would you return back to captivity? You might think that. But I think you would also think, or you might also conclude, that this is a man who keeps his promise. Yeah? This is a man who is good, who is true to his word. His promise can be trusted. I think you would probably have great confidence, would you not, in any future promise he would make, given the lengths he's gone to to keep this promise. Our confidence in any promise given is based on our confidence in the promiser. A promise is worth its salt and its credibility if we trust the person that's made the promise. Agreed? 
thinking about it from a negative, more negative angle, as much as I love politics, and, and I really admire, to be honest with you, most of our politicians who I genuinely think are here to serve us and do the best for our nation. But sadly, much of our nation is becoming increasingly cynical about politics. Is that true? And one of the reasons for that, I would suggest, is because we don't trust the promises that are made. We see certain figures written on the side of certain buses that might come our way after certain referendum results, and we wonder about the trustworthiness of the promises and the promisers themselves. And so my ambition, I guess, as, as, as your pastor for this Advent series is that by the new year, by the conclusion, if you like, of Advent and Christmas and all that goes with it, my ambition for us, for you, is that you might know a greater peace and confidence in the nature and the person and the promises of God. So my heart for you this morning and throughout this series is to be able to get to say New Year's Day and say, as a result of dare I say, even this series and Advent itself, I I stand on the promises of God with greater confidence, with greater joy, with greater poise, and with a greater sense of human flourishing. That's what I think God wants to do with us this morning and throughout this series. And your response this morning will be, I guess, to do with that. I want to invite you at the end to respond to the promises of God. And there'll be opportunity just to to make a decision about certain promises that you want to stand on with increased faith and confidence that are going to take you through whatever Advent holds for you. And we're going to go on the journey to that response over three stages, just to break with my traditional convention. Paternity leave has not changed my approach in that sense. I want to look at the origins of the promise fulfilled at Christmas, what it means to wait on the promise, as I say, what it means for you to trust in the promises of God this morning and this Advent season. So number one, the origins of the promise. And you might expect a, uh, an Advent series for us to land in the nativity, for us to be talking of mangers and shepherds and angels and wise men and baby Jesus and so forth. But initially, I want to take us in this part of the series this morning back to the, the very beginning, back to the very beginning of the story of the Bible, to Genesis 3, to see where God made the promise that was fulfilled at Christmas. That's what Genesis 3 is in some ways about. It's the promise that is fulfilled at Christmas. And so Genesis 3, if you know the story, uh, Genesis 3 having told us of the uh, perfection and peace of creation, it's told us that God and man have been created to exist and enjoy each other in perfect harmony with man giving glory to God. Genesis 3 tells us the bad news. tells us that it went wrong. And it tells us how that perfect design went wrong. And in Genesis 3, we get a direct insight into the brokenness, the the fracturedness in humanity and in our world that we don't need much uh, invitation to be able to see. Genesis 3 shows us, in some ways, what sin is. And you could phrase it like this. Genesis 3 tells us that sin is our decision not to trust that God is good. It's a decision that not to trust that obeying him is for our good, not to live for his glory. And what happens in Genesis 3 is the first moment of sin emerges is that Adam and Eve make a decision to elevate their created selves over and above their creator. It's kind of what sin is in many ways. That's what they do when they choose to eat the forbidden fruit. They're basically saying to God, I don't believe, God, that your boundaries for me are good and for healthy human flourishing. And so I elevate myself to rival and supersede you. I don't want to enjoy you and reflect you and glorify you. That's what's happening in that moment 
in Genesis 3. And, and so sin has that vertical element to it, doesn't it? Us and God. Also has a horizontal element to it, us and each other and creation in that sense. So just an example of the horizontal aspect of that. Why do you, why may you have once got a little rush of pleasure from a moment of gossip? Why do we get a little rush of pleasure from a moment of gossip? Is it not because that in that moment of embarrassing someone else or demeaning someone else, what we're effectively doing is elevating ourselves at their expense, aren't we? We're making ourselves feel in some way a little better at their expense. One psychologist said this, gossiping can create a sense of self-importance for the gossiper, like he or she is privy to information that others aren't, elevating them in status. So sin has that sense of we choose to elevate ourselves above God and we also choose to try and elevate ourselves above each other. We see that right at the beginning. The Bible tells us why we act like that. And so when Adam and Eve choose to elevate themselves to rival God and then begin to to blame each other and hide from God and so forth, everything is fractured in that moment. It's a tragic story. Evil, for the first time, is permitted to make its entrance into a previously unstained world. And the consequences are are tragic. Adam and Eve are are forced to leave the garden. Their relationship with God is broken. Man and woman's way, we're told, of relating to each other has been fractured. It becomes fractious and exploitative and insecure, so their relationship is fractured. Childbearing and work, which are beautiful things, we're told, are stained with suffering. and, And death is the ultimate tragic consequence for a people who were intended to live in peace and joy forever. End of sermon, no. It's a bleak picture, it's a bleak picture, it's the bad news if you like. But within Genesis 3, I want you to see this this morning, there is a chink, a wonderful chink, a ray of light and of hope that I've really uh, been moved by exploring myself this week because I noticed that before God explains to Adam and Eve the consequences of their sin, Before he does that, he says these words to to the devil, to, to evil itself, if you like, embodied in the serpent. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this, theologians agree, is not just telling us why we are uh, aggressive or nervous of, of snakes. Theologians call this verse proto-evangelium, meaning the first gospel. In other words, the first time good news is announced, or the good news is announced. And it just really hit me this week as I was exploring this for myself, that before God gets to the consequences of sin, which he does, and he has to do as a good and perfect and holy God, before he does that, he addresses the serpent first. And he makes it clear that sin will not have the final say, that good will win the day, and evil will lose. I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me explain it like this. When I was a, I was a teenager, I was really into football. It was before the days when I hadn't yet seen the light and converted to rugby. I was into football in those days, and I was a keen follower of Oxford United as a, as a teenager. And this is the mid-90s, so no internet, no 24-hour rolling sports news, no mobile phones and so on. But I discovered as a teenager in the mid-90s that there was a 24-hour landline number you could phone. And whenever you phone this number, they would give you up-to-date information about Oxford United. They'd tell you uh, what's happening on a Saturday, who the who new players were, what the manager was doing. Brilliant. You could phone at any time of day you wanted, get up to 
up-to-date news at a cost. It's one of those premium landline numbers, a pound a minute, if my recollection uh, serves me well, from the mid-90s. And I had more, I've got to be honest with you, I had more than a vague notion that my repeated and lengthy calls to this landline number were going to cost a lot of money to the bill payer my parents. But to be honest with you, I didn't really care that much. I was so consumed, as teenage boys in football can be, with getting in the information that I just kept making these calls, sneaking upstairs so no one could see me, making these calls, kind of thinking it probably wouldn't go, it would go away. You ever convinced yourself of that? It just, it'll go away, it won't come to get me. Two months later, my dad approached me with a bit of paper, somewhat disappointed, as you can imagine, having seen his phone bill rocket. I can't remember the exact cost, but I had clocked up an almighty phone bill at his expense. And he was not happy. He was disappointed, as you'd expect. I'd kind of gone behind his back and knowingly clocked up this enormous phone bill. But what I recall from that father-son encounter, more than the consequences to my action, is the first thing the first thing that my dad said when we had this moment of the confrontation, the first thing he said, and this is from a recollection, so not word for word, but was something along the lines of, Philip, this is going to be okay. I love you. I'm for you. We're going to get through this. It'll be okay. That's my kind of heart recollection of that, of that moment. Now, that wasn't all he said. <laughs> there were some consequences to my actions, not least to my pocket money. But my enduring memory is that the first thing he said, he essentially said was, bad is not going to win the day. Good will triumph. I'm with you through it. We're going to get through this to something better. And that's just a, a very small and, and kind of incomplete picture, I think, of how God is dealing with humanity in Genesis 3. One um, commentator put it like this, the reason we celebrate Advent at Christmas is because the story of the garden doesn't end with man's rebellion, but instead his redemption. Right at the outset, God makes this promise that there will be a descendant of Eve, one who will be bruised and crushed, but who in turn will triumph and bruise and crush evil and sin and death itself. It's the gospel being hinted at as a ray of light, the first thing God says, it's beautiful. And so over and over again, this promise that evil won't win the day, that sin will not triumph. It's ingrained in the narrative of the people of God. They live with it century after century after century. The promise of a rescuer, a savior, a king, a messiah, a suffering king. One who would come as the descendant of Eve. And though he might be crushed and suffer himself, would triumph and bruise and crush the devil and sin and death. And they live with this promise for centuries. And that's my second point this morning. What does it mean to then wait on the promise of God? And this promise, like I say, is repeated famously throughout the Bible, not least in Isaiah chapter 9. If you've ever been to any kind of carol service, you've probably heard the famous verses of Isaiah 9 read out. They go like this in verses 6 to 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Are you getting that carol service feeling yet? And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will do this. Isaiah, can you see the way he speaks kind of of the future in the present? 
So confident is he that God will fulfill the promise he made in Genesis 3 through the offspring of Eve, the line of David, the tribe of Judah, and so on and so forth. Now, two things about what it means to wait on promises that I think we can see from this passage. Circumstances and delay. Number one, circumstances. You see, you can read a passage like this, if anything like me, in the glow of candles and, car- and carrots? Candles. <laughs> not much sleep last night. Candles and carols and mangers and angels and shepherds and wise men and so forth. This is often how we experience this reading. In other words, we know we stand this side of the promise fulfilled. The child of Eve, the line of David, the tribe of Judah, God himself, who no one created, allowing himself to be born, to be created of a woman. We know that, how the story ends, if you like. But, When Isaiah spoke these words, nothing in his or Israel's circumstances suggested this promise was gonna come true. So in 700 AD, when Isaiah is writing, Israel is in a mess, it's divided, loads of people have abandoned God, Uh, the Assyrian Empire is threatening and lurking in the east, nothing in Isaiah and Israel's circumstances suggested this would come true. And yet what does Isaiah say? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. He doesn't allow circumstances to negate the promise of God. Do you? I want to encourage you this morning. Don't let circumstances define the trustworthiness of God's promises. Isaiah didn't, and nor do you. Number two, delay. Isaiah wrote in around 700 BC. What does that tell us? Jesus, the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis 3, was not born for another 700 years. Listen, if my web browser takes more than two seconds to upload, I get impatient. 700 years before the promise is fulfilled. What does that tell us? God's timescales are not our timescales. It's the eternal one outside of time and space. His timescales are not your timescales. Genesis 3, if it reminds us of anything, it reminds us that God is God and we are not. And indeed, it was Adam and Eve's decision to reject that that caused evil to enter the world. Delay, King's Church, delay does not make the promises of God void. I want to encourage you with that this morning. Those of you who are hanging on to certain things, believe in God for certain things, trust in God for certain things, circumstances that don't line up or delay that is delaying, Don't negate the trustworthiness of the promises of God. And I'm going to show you why in a second. See, God was working to his own timeline. 700 years later, a child was born, as Isaiah said. A son was given. A son who went on to become sin for us in order to crush sin on behalf of us. One who was crushed by evil in order to defeat evil. He did inaugurate an eternal kingdom through his resurrection, which would bring order and restoration and renewal to this earth, and ultimately one day forever and perfectly so. My main point, my only point really this morning is that the birth of Christ at Christmas tells us God fulfills his promises. The birth of Christ at Christmas tells us God fulfills his promises. He does not lie. Now, at which point, you might say, and we'd love uh, kind of having those sent back sense of questions and exploration here at King's Church. You might say, you might be here this morning saying, virgin birth, really? 
incarnation. I mean, my friends and family who would say that approaching Christmas, I have. So let me just kind of address that issue just briefly, and I hope helpfully. Here's what I would say. Miracles are hard to believe in, because they're miracles. So it's not unreasonable to find something like the virgin birth hard to believe in. Miracles are. But I want to suggest that many people around the world, including those from an atheistic or agnostic worldview, are believing in miracles as well, just different ones. Let me tell you what I, show you what I mean. I was helped this week by somebody much cleverer than me. You ever appreciate that when someone much cleverer than you can bring you help in these things? Uh, Dr. Vince Vitali, who will pop up now as a, a professor of theology at Oxford University, clever guy, very helpful. And he was very helpful in this particular issue. And the first thing he does is he quotes um, someone called Peter Singer. He may know as one of the world's most influential uh, bright atheists. And Peter Singer was asked a great question, which he engaged with. Why are we here? Pretty profound question. And his answer was, we can assume that somehow in the primeval soup, we got collections of molecules that became self-replicating, and I don't think we need any miraculous or mysterious explanation. And what Dr. Vitali says in response to that is that self-replicating molecules somehow emerging out of a primeval soup does leave in itself substantial room for mystery. That is a mysterious concept, an idea. In fact, he says, it, it doesn't sound that dissimilar to a virgin birth, in that sense, or a virgin birth of the universe. He goes on to look at Professor Stephen Hawking, and Hawking's given his latest uh, kind of explanation for the universe through his own atheistic worldview. And uh, Professor Hawking says, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Spontaneous creation is the reason there is something rather than nothing. Why the universe exists and why we exist. And Dr. Vitali responds and says, well, physical matter doesn't normally materialize out of nothing. So this account also presents at least realms outside of the ordinary. And he asks, I don't think unreasonably, is that account less mysterious or miraculous indeed than the birth of Jesus? And Dr. Vitali finishes by saying this, the fact is, we live in a miraculous world. Regardless of a person's worldview, the extraordinariness of the universe is evident to theists, atheists, and agnostics alike. It is therefore not a matter of whether we believe in a virgin birth, but which virgin birth we choose to accept. We can believe in the virgin birth of an atheistic universe that is indifferent to us, a universe where, and he quotes Richard Dawkins famously, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Alternatively, we can believe in the virgin birth of a God who loves us so deeply that he made and kept his promise to become one of us and restore us to himself. I hope that helps you a little bit if the virgin birth is a challenging concept. I hope it helps if you've got friends and family who want to engage with this this Christmas. It doesn't prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt, but it helps us to see the credibility that the Christian faith carries, and it helps us to gently challenge the way that all of us have faith in certain things, and even faith in miraculous things. Point. If the virgin birth is true, if the incarnation, God becoming human, is true, then God has fulfilled the promise that he made at the outset of the creation of mankind. And if he has fulfilled that promise, at great cost to himself, the bruising and the crushing that he experienced, I want to put it to you that he can be trusted in all of his promises. So, 
Let's conclude that list. What does it mean for you to trust in the promises of God this morning? God has made hundreds of promises in the Bible. Theologians suggest some 7,000. So I thought we'd go through each in turn. (laughs) Some of them are specific to certain people, but many of them are for believers. They are promises for you when you explore the gospel for yourself and come to faith in Jesus Christ. So I wanna give you a sample, just a sample of the promises of God that are true for you if you're a Christian here this morning or as you explore faith and come to faith yourself, they are true for you. Let me just read them to you as they come onto the screen. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will just bring a sense of faith into your heart for the the timely ones, the ones that are gonna bring this confidence and poise and joy that I'm praying you're gonna experience over Advent and Christmas. These are things that God promises to you. Number one, to never leave or forsake you. To work all things together for your good. He promises to let nothing separate you from the love of Christ. He promises that he has created good works for you to walk in today. These are all taken from scripture verses you can see on the screen. He promises that you are being transformed into his likeness. He promises that he won't let you be tried or tempted beyond what you can endure. It's a promise of God to you. He promises that he will supply all your needs. He promises that you may approach him with freedom and confidence, as we heard, I think, from Anna this morning. He promises that the good work he began in you, he will complete. He promises that suffering and trials can actually lead you to maturity and greatness. He promises that if you ask for wisdom from God, he'll give it to you. He promises that if you resist the devil and the power of the Holy Spirit, he has to flee. He promises to you that prayer is effective and that the Holy Spirit will help you to pray. And finally, and I think this is for anyone who is uh, asking questions about Christianity, this is what God promises to anyone who begins to explore him. God says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. It's the disposition of God towards anyone who would take steps towards him. I want to help us to really think about our response to that in a in a specific way. So Ross, could you come and uh, help us in the band? I'm gonna draw us into worship in a moment. I don't know what your Christmas holds. You probably don't either. I don't know whether you're hoping for certain things at Christmas that are unique to Christmas, praying for certain things. I don't know whether circumstances are or are not lining up with the promises of God. I don't know what delay you're living with on those things, but I do know this. If God knows everything, which I think he must do if he's God and he's behind the creation of the universe and the cosmos. If he knows everything, is it not true to say that he must have known before the creation of mankind what was gonna happen? Jesus, God, Holy Spirit, this extraordinary trinity knew, I think, that the choice they were gonna give mankind to live with God in rhythm and harmony and love, and of course, choice is a prerequisite, it's not for a genuine relationship, otherwise we're just robots. 
God must have known that the choice he would given, he would give to us to live in harmony and joy with him would be used to, to break that harmony and that rhythm and that glory and that wonder. So that tells me that Jesus must have known what it was going to cost him to, to create you. And he still did. He must have known what it was going to cost him to, to leave the wonder of heaven, be born as a vulnerable little baby, grow and learn about stuff, grow in wisdom, and ultimately suffer and die and rise on your behalf. He must have known the cost that it would take him, that it would require to fulfill the promise that's made in Genesis 3. And he created you as well anyway. <laughs> So if you've heard nothing else this morning, I hope you've heard this, that the gospel is this, Jesus Christ keeping his promise to humanity to restore it, to renew it, to draw men and women and children back in to the rhythm and harmony of God-ordained living they were created for. So I'm just gonna sit down now, and, and Ross is gonna kindly play and then lead us into worship. But the final thing I'm gonna do is just ask Seamus just to replay those promises on the screen for you, so that you can just look through them again. And as I say, allow the Spirit of God to work in your heart and your mind, and just to speak to him in the quiet of your heart. And I wanna invite you to take steps of faith this morning, and say, I think this or these are a promise or promises for me to stand afresh on today and to take with me through the Advent season. Because I believe for you, God wants to bring you into the new year saying, I am standing more confident, more poised, more joyful, more humble because of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So, we're gonna do that now. The screen's gonna play, I'm gonna sit, and then in time, we'll stand and sing together.